0: Well, good morning, Mike. Good morning. Today we are picking up where we left off last week when we were chatting about cultural capital. Mm-hmm. I, I believe we've talked about this before, but this was kind of meant to be a refresher. And for me personally, never never gets old having these conversations. So um, we can we can jump right in. You know, we we talked about the importance of. Uh, Kind of seeing the different layers to cultural capital, I, I was kind of using that example as how I'm starting to see and connect the dots in a way that I haven't before. Uh, I'm I'm curious if we think through those those there there's cultural capital immediately as just even even a a person. We can think about cultural capital institutionally. Um, so I'm going to zoom in and just start at that that first level, and for for me to recap the story. I, I recognize the trajectory of my career. It wasn't really lining, aligning with what you had been talking about with cultural capital and saw a different opportunity for me. That was, that was just a, a job change to align better, but maybe we can talk about what's, what's the, what's the meaning of that? Why is, why is that important? Why, why is it job change have, what does that have to do with cultural capital?
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, good question. And, uh... You know, I think, um, Pat, Pat and I, in this conversation, we feel a lot like, uh, remember when uh, Lewis and Clark started to head West, I believe it was 1803. And, um, Jefferson famously said there were, they were men of undaunted courage. And, uh, for us to talk about cultural capital, it feels daunting because, uh, we're pretty sure who our six, seven listeners are joking, but, um, the fact is this whole notion of cultural capital is pretty foreign, or pretty unfamiliar to most uh, most of us. Uh, I never heard anything about it, but I was in my 50s perhaps, my 60s, but uh, you know, I felt it in my vocation, especially as a, as a pastor, as I joke, I could give the opening prayer in the opening of the Senate, but then I was politely asked to leave when they got down to business. And I remember uh, there's a a well-known ministry in DC, but there's actually over 60 ministries in DC. And every one of them famously likes to brag that, um, well, we only deal with the, you know, the legislator's soul. We don't get into politics. Well, that's because they have no cultural capital in that arena. So here you are, if you work in DC, and we're not advocating that's the highest and best use of your time. What we're saying is for all these ministries, when it comes back, when it comes to, for example, build back better and infrastructure bills, you don't see clergy, especially of the conservative type, being called in because it's recognized they have gravitas, the uh, the word dash is kavad is the Hebrew word for God. And because God is gravitas and gravitas, it means you attract people to you. Gravity is attractional. It pulls people because they sense you have something, you have weight to bring to this. It's weighty what you have to say. And that's why we're talking about this because we are afflicted with uh, three things. It's called pragmatism. And the second is called uh, progressivism and the third is politicization. And because of that, we don't have any gravitas. We have very little, would be a better way to put it. And we never think about that in our workplace, any of these. And, it, and so when the world seems to go screwy or things seem to come apart, all we can do is complain or try to get certain people elected to which, um, First of all, the caliber of people that seem to be vying for office is not particularly impressive in the history of the U.S., especially now. And second, that's not how you change the world. And so cultural capital is really difficult to talk about. This is a daunting topic because the average Christian has a personalized, privatized faith. I thought time. I'd just chalk chalk out that dead body here on the, on the ground before we started to do a, a post-mortem. <laughs> yeah. That's what it feels like. <laughs> it was, it was okay, good. there's the body. We outlined it. Now let's talk about what happened here.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's good because, again, I think we, we hit on this last week too, but sometimes it's easier, at least it has been for me, to understand cultural capital when I start to see the void of what's supposed to be there. You know that yeah. you see the gap of where we are, and yeah. then this gravitas of where the church has been. So that's that's right. that
1: good. That's helpful, Mike. Thank you. That's right. So I'll give you another example of cultural capital if you want. Sure. Um, people will understand cultural capital. Allah, frankly, the last instance I believe in history of the, uh, in terms of the conservative faith tradition, would be the Clapham sect, those who lived in in Clapham, England, just outside of London, most famously known by William Wilberforce, 1790 to 1833, over 60 reforms, including the abolition of the English slave trade, but they were business people and artists and um, uh, playwrights, poets. um, And they believed it wasn't through argumentation, nor even politics so much although there was legislation but it was the idea one of their phrases was make goodness fashionable and so they used imagery and the arts and little uh, booklets there were coffee houses so that there there there's this what grew was the sense that the slave trade which seemed to be just sort of something you, you, you didn't imagine what was happening it was just more we got to have it became something that was not beautiful. Now I say all that because the uh, one of the most powerful movements of the last 50, 60 years, set aside your feelings on it, but the point is is the, uh, the whole transgender movement and same-sex marriage and the rest, and they have focused mostly on, How do you gain influence in institutions that have cultural capital? How do you gain capital there so that you are seen as a serious player? You have weight in what is produced. And so in the new movie that's coming out on Buzz Lightyear, growing up as a boy, his best friend is a black lesbian who you have. Um, the scene in the end of their kissing and uh, Disney uh, debated and then edited out that scene and Pixar came back and said, no, why are you caving to? And they listed all the made all the inflammatory statements. So uh, Disney capitulated and there are now 14 countries around the world, mostly Islamic that have banned the movie. But if you're here in America, you have a whole lot of parents who are going to go, Christians who are going to say, Boy, I'm really conflicted. My kids want to see this movie. But it subtly just continues to introduce them to or erode any meaning or any beauty attached to monogamous, heterosexual, faithful, permanent marriage. And you do it not by making some kind of attack or saying, we're preserving biblical values more you just have a film that depicts other ways of understanding marriage as beautiful. But you have to have cultural capital. And as you well know, because of this book that was written after the ball, published in 1990, they told you their strategy. The strategy is gonna be, we're gonna win this thing without having a culture war. We're gonna win it by images and institutions. And so they began to build cultural capital in part by saying those who are gifted perhaps in the arts or gifted in filmmaking or gifted in writing to say i'm going to use an extreme example but okay you you can go to liberty or you can go to nyu go to nyu why
0: yeah i think that's the that's the key piece why why nyu That's that's right Who's gonna
1: who's gonna take you more seriously? That's right. You are in the network. Yeah. And my good friend John <laughs> Seal's new book is on network science. And it reinforces the main thrust of James Hunter's work into change the world. It is dense overlapping networks, center institution networks, and the elites who run them. Now you may not like that word, elites. And you may not like hearing that. But that's just burying your head in the sand, that especially up and through the Middle Ages, the church was considered a mediating institution between competing interests, and it had gravitas. So when it came to time for the inception of what became the modern university, the church sat in the center. It didn't create christian universities christian is not an adjective it created what became excellent universities oxford cambridge malone paris where the church having cultural gravitas could take all the sciences history math biology and put them in a big circle and the center, like the sun, which has the greatest mass and gravity (gravitas), theology was at the center, and it pulled all the other sciences together, made them cohere, and made them meaningful.
0: One well, from from my perspective, when I first started to hear you talk about these things. I was coming from the frame probably of, of your average believer, which was, you know, the, the, the culture has a problem. Maybe you start to shift into seeing the gap of cultural capital and then you realize, well, it's, you know, it's their fault for not taking us seriously. We have the answers, you know, the the, mm-hmm. the our faith has the answers. It's their fault, they should take us more seriously. Mm-hmm. And then maybe you realize, at least I started to. Oh, it's not necessarily their fault. We're not. We're not exercising what we already know. So let's take your example of uh, maybe build back better is is too big, but let's take. Uh, I don't know. We'll, we can go with that. We'll take
1: the uh, take take the um, Supreme Court ruling on who how marriage is defined. Sure, sure. Even using that it's like okay
0: as as believers we we have more we have more knowledge about how to handle this situation. But then I started to realize actually as believers I don't think we do. We may have the head knowledge, but we don't have much of the experience on how to solve some of these complex problems according to our faith. And that's when I started to be awakened. And that goes back to the resume thing I think I talked about last week. And I started to really feel cultural capital when suddenly I'm the hiring manager at a large company and I'm seeing resumes come through and you can feel the gravitas of someone on a resume and even more so on their phone screen. If you flush out whether or not the resume is, is, (laughs) is valid or, or just inflated and, and, that actually that was, that started to be my my screening was simply that how, where's my fluff detector, and when I would do screenings, I would detect whether or not, or do my best to detect whether or not a candidate was 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 fluff. Did did what they claim, just describe maybe what they wanted to do, or how they viewed what they did, or did what they claim on their resume actually describe real situations where they solved real complex problems.
1: That's right.
0: And that's when I started to realize, our problem's not out there, our problem is actually in here. Do we even know how to solve some of these complex problems? And as I I started to go down this path, trying to grow as a leader in secular organizations, uh, it was a wide awakening that, I think my faith does have the answer to these things, but I don't know how to solve these problems according to my faith. And that that's was right.
1: that was pretty sobering. That's exactly right. And um, that's exactly right. It's, you gain capital by, um, you might be, you know, even though he's a rather eccentric individual, might be someone who says uh, I can beat the auto companies of their own game. I can create an electric vehicle far quicker. I create a more economic rocket. We want to go to the moon. Now we know what we're talking about. And the fact of the matter is, the old EF Hutton commercial, when EF Hutton talks, people listen. That's the old commercial. When Elon Musk talks, people listen. Why? It's not because he's maybe a little bit because he's eccentric, but he's also has accomplished things, and he has shown that big institutions have trouble innovating. So you're exactly right, Pat. That um, our point here today is where are the Christians who understand that? Listen, there's a when I was a pastor, I, I. Believed, hey, I know a truth that's actually eternal. That should give a far greater weight than anything else out there. It should actually make sense of everything. And I tried to preach that way. And, you know, so I could preach before a lot of people. So why is it at the last, uh, one of the larger events I went to once in Naples, and it was a commencement, and the speaker, um, I'll leave his name out, but he's well known, had to cancel the last moment. They didn't say, hey, wait a minute, there's a guy here who speaks all the time and he actually speaks on eternal truths. Maybe we ought to have him speak. You've got to be nuts, man. The guy's religious. Now, the solution isn't become a celebrity pastor. It's what you said, um, Pat, that you actually bring innovative solutions. And I find that fascinating because the Latin innovate comes from the Greek to renew. And the mission of the church is a renewal of all things. That would mean renewing how we eat because America is becoming fatter. And even, and there are Christians who take that seriously uh, and think about, What would be healthier eating? What does the Bible say? What you find out is you've got to have cultural gravitas to be taken seriously that your approach is actually healthier. And people aren't going to be drawn to it because you say, it's because it's in the Bible. They're going to be drawn to it because they'll say, it's in the body. We have empirical studies on bodily this is a better way to live then you get into now you then you have to deliver that product now you're into supply chains now you're into everything else that every other person who wants to make an impact in the world is competing for it's a limited space it's always under a competitive pressures and so you're right there's it's not an easy task, and I find that the vast majority of Christians I know, this goes right over their head, or they feel their battery drain even talking about it and go, you know, they love to quote, I just want to live a quiet life, working with my hands, and get in a small group, and go to church and worship the Lord. there really is something so attractive about that (laughs) yeah well then in that case don't get stirred if for example a recent pitch could be an executive action or attempt to legislate would ban conversion therapy now i don't know if conversion therapy works at all i don't know and we're talking about helping people come out of But the fact of the matter, Chip and Joanna Gaines Church has programs for that. So what would it be like one day? You're running Magnolia Network, and the uh, federal government comes along and says, uh, you're, this is, this just simply, they can tar and feather the work you're doing at the very least. But they can certainly erode a lot of your capacity to that. They have all sorts of ways because the power of government is by nature coercive. It doesn't pass legislation on withholding income and you paying taxes and doesn't ask you to comply. It tells you to comply. That's called coercive, rightly so. A stop sign is not a suggestion. But it's not the way you change the world by coercing behavior. You have to compel people to do the right thing. And that's where the church was called a mediating institution between the coercive power of the state and the runaway power of the individual simply saying, well, this is the way I'm going to live, period. I don't really give a damn about all that stuff over there. But there are a whole lot of Christians who feel that way. So there's even a ludicrous article a friend sent me about someone saying, well, the conservatives ought to see seed and just form their own america and come to an agreement with the liberals and liberals can have their states and the conservative has theirs and this guy's actually suggesting this is worth considering Hmm. (laughs) did you hear christians talk this way yeah now i'll grant you it is a challenge if you're saying Now, we're sending our kids to the elementary school, and I'm in no way making any judgments if someone says, you know, we're going to plunk them in a Christian school, or we're going to plunk them in um, homeschool. All that's fine. There's a picture in Revelation that a friend of mine was preaching last week, and but it's actually, uh, it harkens back to uh, the Proverbs. I mention it for this reason. You have in creation this image of a woman. who's called wisdom. She is self identified as saying, I was long before God began to create the heavens and the earth, I was there. I think it's the first mysterious emergence of. The Father, Son, Spirit want to expand the circle of love by wedding their love with beings like them. Marriage. Now here's the fascinating thing. Jesus talked about a gatekeeper because sheep need to sleep in a pen and yet they have to go out through the gate into various paths, vocations, the work they do. Now that gatekeeper is typically called a prophet, and elsewhere in scripture, this woman, wisdom, Sophia, says, I stand at the gate and call out, where is the wisdom? And all these paths converge at the gate. What's the picture? The picture is the church as the bride is supposed to be a prophetic conveyor of wisdom so you're in tech Pat, and someone else over here is in sales and someone else over here is in independent living or assisted living or someone else over here is in uh, carpentry or someone else and all these paths the church is supposed to as they send them out every week out of the sheep pen into the wider world to be a resource the knowledge of how things work, and giving and helping and equipping, so that so that believers gain cultural capital to be taken seriously. I think that's hardly being done today. In fact, I find it interesting. I don't know all the details, but after some plus. 30, 40 years of investing in faith and work. The Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City, Tim Keller, has said of the eight things that they're going to focus on, one is almost an admittance that their whole faith and work hasn't been nearly as effective as they had hoped. In fact, he goes on to say we actually need a Protestant version of Catholic social thought which is far more robust than the faith and work movement in the Protestant world because it takes into account cultural capital. You've got to earn the right to be heard. And today, most of the stuff on faith and work has been, a focused on resourcing pastors to even understand the relationship, but B, frames most of it as biblical values and biblical principles of which there's some validity. But the fact is you can't work at Google and come in and say, Hey, we'd be a better company if we followed these six biblical principles. That's not how you gain cultural capital. The sons of Judah learned the language and literature of, ba- of Babylon so they could translate it into the language and the customs and the understandings of the Babylonians so that one day Nebuchadnezzar with the plus 1400 temples in the city perhaps representing plus 1400 deities would say, yours is the one true God. That is the way reality actually works. So it's daunting. Yeah,
0: it is, it is.
1: I think it's a great opportunity, frankly, for uh, if churches were serious about this, um, or maybe churches, are uh, ne- never gonna get on the ball on this, but the few that start these, Fellows programs, which are like a gap year when you come out, is an initial stab at saying, here for this gap. We've got to start investing in a more robust formation of how you understand the faith. Um, But, you know, that that gets harder and harder uh, because more and more students come out with debt and they've got to get after. You know work and um but these kinds of programs uh they just don't happen overnight it takes a couple of years to actually embody even the, the, the notion of cultural capital it just does
0: yeah yeah well I, I think something that came to mind for me as you were talking was you know the question to what end To what end are we doing this? And I I think if you listen to this or if you're familiar with some things on cultural capital, it's easy to think that end could be, oh, you know, reclaiming America. You know, that's an easy Mm -hmm. one to fall into. And that's not what we're talking about. Um, Mm -hmm. It could also be uh, just, I don't know, earning more power or having a more cultural influence. Even that is not necessarily, I think, what we're talking about what came to mind for me was as i've started to to journey on this path and really feel like i'm in uncharted waters with with your input and wisdom uh it has been re- kind of this this recognition that god's call has been to be fruitful multiply fill the earth and have dominion over the earth mm-hmm. yeah and i've i've just seen there have been elements of my faith that i just did not understand until i started to seek out cultural capital because cultural capital directly relates to dominion having it and exercising it and you're missing a big piece to your faith if you're not exercising dominion or even aware of how you're exercising dominion or how you ought to be exercising dominion and so I, I, I think it's important to talk. It's daunting, but it's, it's not a means to an end. The end is the kingdom, and you're seeking the kingdom of God. And how do you do that? Well, you do what he told you to do. And there's an element of exercising dominion, gaining cultural capital to do so, and that cyclical nature that is, uh, will en- enliven a piece of your faith you probably didn't know you had. And I think that's, that's important because it's, it's not just chasing this thing. It is an embodied element of our faith that I think we've lost.
1: Boy, I hit the nail on the head, especially right there in the end. I'm thinking about if uh, you've, folks, if you've never read The Spirit of the Disciplines by Dallas Willard. Um, it's worthwhile because the first place you have dominion is over your body. And the fact of the matter is that the average believer I know doesn't have dominion over their appetites. They don't have dominion over the language they use. They don't, they say things. You go, that's about as far away from scripture as you can get, but they wouldn't know. They don't have a dominion over anxiety. They don't have dominion over their fears. They don't have dominion over their food appetites they don't have dominion over their sexual appetites and so you're exactly right pat the one thing that we share in human race is everyone is made to have dominion doesn't matter if you know jesus or you don't it's hardwired and we are famous as a tradition in the last couple hundred years really an aberration from historic christianity that we don't talk much about having dominion we talk about making disciples making quote fully devoted disciples which will go to the end of the earth with the gospel well newsflash you'll never be fully devoted first of all out of this life You can come toward and come very close to perhaps the fullness of salvation, but never completely. Not in this life. And second, you're not going to be devoted if you don't have dominion over your body, which requires you first to have to understand what it means to have dominion, go back to the creation mandate, the cultural mandate, before you even get into the Great Commission. And this was where I think N.T. Wright saying the way forward, for us, as evangelicals, is Ian McGilchrist's work, especially the Master and his Emissary. Because the work of neuroscience is telling you 95% of our behaviors are non-conscious. We're not aware of them. They're culturally governed. So if you don't make cultures, you're not going to be able to govern your behaviors. And so, I agree with what you just said. We just need to do what Jesus told us to do. Well, newsflash, we're not going to be able to do which Jesus told us to do. If we have no cultural gravitas in shaping the cultures in which we live, we're going to fall prey to them. Not because we're bad people. It's because we're culturally conditioned people for the most part. And that's good because God created, had we never fallen, the governing of the culture would have been done by people following Christ and so, goodness would be fashionable, it would be easy, it would be natural. It would be, you're working in this company, pad, and you're working in technology, or perhaps you're, it could be in any line of work. And people are just naturally generous with what they know in the work. They naturally work hard and responsibly. They naturally give to those who have less. They naturally love their neighbor. They don't have to hear sermons about, come on, people get pumped up about this. They are pumped up. So you have to have you have to have cultural heft to heft the culture. Move it in a certain direction. But you're right. It's not about reclaiming, not about winning the war. It's not about a culture war. It's not about... You don't win cultures by war. That is, again, coercive. You woo as Jesus wooed us to him as our bridegroom and we as his bride. I didn't twist Kathy's arm to marry me. I wooed her. Some would say I snookered her, and then the first morning woke up, yikes, I married this guy. <laughs> <laughs> I wooed her. And to woo meant we each felt in the other what can rightly be called a cultural sort of capital where we said there's something about that. Because again, gravitas draws Pulls has gravity, and I was drawn to Kathy. I gravitated toward her, and she gravitated toward me, and two have become one. It works the same way in cultures. So you have to have gravitas to pull, to attract toward a better way of doing work or understanding marriage as a portal. Or so on and so forth. Cultural capital. You have to earn it. And it takes hard, hard work. i close with this. Paul actually uses the word uh, agony to describe what he's talking about here. I agonize over this stuff. It means I sweat. I work hard. Elsewhere, he says it takes discipline, which is the... Greek word, gymnasio, our word, gymnasium. And it literally means to work out till your guts are just killing you. You, Pat, because I know you work out in the gym a lot. And mm-hmm. um, you see all of Pat's pictures online. Kidding. <laughs> um, but the fact of the matter is, you don't walk into a weightlifting competition if you haven't sweated bullets. And worked hard to gain the sort of capital, to be invited to that tournament and to actually win it. And that's the same way with every other field of expertise. If you don't like education, then you gotta you gotta do what Horace Mann did 150, 200 years ago. You gotta earn the capital to say, we're gonna create public education this way, and it's gonna be for this purpose. And he filled he took in the vacating of education by fund, by primarily evangelical Christians, the fastest growing movement at that time in the United States. And we vacated that space and man and the rest stepped in.